Welcome to the CFO Playbook, where we bring you insights and strategies on how the many obstacles facing the heads of finance functions internationally are being tackled. I'm your host, Francis Bardenost. I'm the UK content lead at Soldo. And in each episode, we help you grow your team, your company, and yourself. Today, we welcome on the show Bill Farback. He is the Chief Financial Officer at Facet, a company that offers impartial and invaluable financial advice and services, all at an affordable membership fee. Bill is a strategic financial executive and an entrepreneurial CFO slash COO hybrid with an extensive investment banking background and rounded technology operational experience. With a track record of significant growth, capital raises and exits, he's a leader in finance, operations, systems and legal capacities. In this episode, Bill and I talk about the changing dynamics between CFO and CEO, the importance of a healthy work-life balance, and how a primarily remote-first culture affects the pathway to becoming a CFO. So let's get into it. Enjoy, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whichever medium you prefer. This episode of the CFO Playbook is brought to you by Soldo. Soldo changes the way companies spend for the better. It combines company cards with a management platform to make employee expenses and company spending simple and efficient. Soldo is trusted by businesses like Monzo, Mercedes-Benz, and Sony to improve control of company spend. And if you'd like to know more, visit www.soldo.com to book a demo or get in touch. So we are joined now by Bill Farback, the CFO at Facet. Bill, how are you? I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me. Bill, where in the world are you? I'm in New Jersey, on the New Jersey shore, just south of Manhattan here. You're one of the, the many commuters that sort of do that commute from New Jersey to New York City, is that? Well, interestingly enough, we're um, a fully virtual company since COVID. So I am in the city very often. Our investors are in there. We have employees in there. I've hired very much out of New York. So I do go in there, but we don't have a formal office. We have temporary space that we use there. Tell me about that, working fully remotely as a CFO. I assume you've done both. So you've probably done the in-person side of things you know, pre-pandemic. And then since then, you're now fully remote. How has that changed things? It's been interesting. I mean, COVID hit right when um, I had stepped into my prior role at Culture IQ. I was about a month in, so it was interesting to kind of just be learning the ropes. And, and in that particular case, it was a, you know, we had an office in, in New York. We're in there every day. That was our headquarters. I'd say, man, I was a big skeptic. I mean, I thought once that all happened, I was like, how are we going to actually operate here? Going from being in the office every single day to being fully remote. And surprisingly, I'd say both with Culture IQ uh, and currently with FASA, which, as I mentioned, is fully virtual and and became fully virtual also sort of right when COVID uh, came through. It's been relatively seamless. We do have to go, you know, certainly out of our way to get people together. And we have to be very intentional about it because, you know, bringing people together just for the sake of bringing people together, you know, has some value. But we have employees across the country, 48 states. So when we do that, what we seek to do is bring people together with a purpose in pockets of areas where we have concentrations of employees 
and to have a really sort of solid agenda to get some things done, but also have some good time. In terms of the remote work, have you noticed any strategic differences in terms of your role? What has changed, if anything, or has nothing really changed? I think what has changed is if you think about the CFO role, it's, it's really critically important that you get the right information out to the organization. So the organization wants to understand how we are doing as a business. And it's not as simple as sort of just saying like, look, here are the numbers, right? There's a lot of color. There's a lot of context. So I would say as CFO, it's been challenging. It's actually pushed probably the limits in terms of like, how do you communicate effectively with the employee base? Whereas when you're in the office, in a physical office, it's more natural, I guess you could say, and more seamless to sort of be having routine discussions with employees across the board and articulating, you know, the good, the bad, and everything in between and getting that message across. In a virtual environment, what I found is that the struggle is always finding that balance of how do I get the right message out in the right forums and not create, let's say, like a drain of unnecessary meetings that people get bored in, right? So it's finding that balance, you know, articulating the right information, but also giving the right context in a way that employees will be engaged. I'd say that was, that's been the biggest challenge. It's an interesting one too. And it's one that I've thought about before because a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are not necessarily CFOs, the people with sort of CFO ambitions, I guess, people who are on that journey, the same kind of journey that you took yourself. I'm interested to know uh, whether you have any thoughts about how, obviously not every company is remote first, but a lot of companies are now how a remote first working culture affects that kind of pathway to CFO. Do you think it makes it harder? You know, you're not sort of so visible in terms of the work that you do and the contribution you're making? Well, if I take a step back, even like, you know, let's say prior to CFO, what I would say is if you took away my junior years in the office from me and had me working remote, I think that would be damaging. I think being a junior employee, you know, right out of college and having direct access to, you know, the action within the business and building the work ethic and the accountability, I think that was really, really important, right? By the time you've gotten to the CFO level, presumably you've sort of established the right cadence and character to operate under those conditions. And so I think from an operating standpoint, communication challenges with the organization aside, I actually think it's relatively seamless. And what's also pretty interesting is that, you know, for what I do, which is I've been CFO of private equity-backed businesses and sold several businesses. So things are always moving fast. I don't, at this juncture, have to pick up and move to San Francisco, right? If, if I sell a business to a strategic and want to take on a new role, there, there are actually opportunities now that didn't exist before. So I would imagine that that would be true even for sort of somebody coming up today and looking for a CFO role. Whereas in the past, the only option might have been to pick up and move yourself or your family or whoever to find that role. You might not have to do that now. Now, there are several businesses, obviously, that are instituting hybrid and are instituting summer fully in person. But there is still reasonable virtual presence. And I can say for myself, like what's different now is that I'm on a plane a lot, right? Whereas in the past, I'd find an office in the city. Maybe if I was fundraising, I was on a plane a lot or occasionally to see a client or occasionally to 
get together with employees. Now I'm traveling a lot. It's an interesting one also that aspect of moving to, or I guess in the past having to move to almost like a predefined list of like big cities in the US it would be, you know, New York or whatever here in the UK where I am, it's, it's London. But uh, I actually had a guest on a few weeks back, Peter De Silva. He's a CEO. One of the things he recommended was almost looking for opportunities in smaller cities, I guess, quote unquote, less glamorous places, so to speak. And I was wondering whether you had any thoughts on that. He made his name in Cincinnati, for instance, a less competitive market. But yeah, you could have a big impact there. I think what I've learned over the last several years is what is critically important is the business itself, right? There are a lot of great investors. There are a lot of great relationships you could have on executive teams. But you fundamentally need a good business at the end of the day. So if you're thinking about sort of, you know, second or third tier cities, there are a lot of great businesses in those. Like, you know, every great business now is not centered in New York or San Francisco, right? Sure, there's a concentration, but there are great businesses everywhere. And so like, to that extent, if you can find a great business that has great people surrounding it, and it's in Cincinnati, you should go for it. Why not? Unless you have an aversion to Cincinnati, you know, jump on board. <laughs> so I've got a very niche allergy or some kind. <laughs> right. One of the things you spoke about, just to circle back, was coming straight out of college. Through my sort of, I guess, routine stalking of you online, I noticed that you went to the University of Chicago. You went to um, the University of Maryland before that, but went to Chicago as a graduate school student. What did your time there at, at like an institution of that quality teach you? I would say that my experience at Chicago was really helpful to refining my craft around passing through weak arguments. And what I mean by that is everybody in my courses there had sort of the right training and work ethic and intellectual ability that if you tried to make an argument that was in any way weak, that maybe you could pass through in a general corporate setting with some level of influence, it would get shot down. So having you know a couple of years of that level of training with content and courses that were pretty deep, uh, and you had to build positions that required a lot of research and detail to get to, having sort of intelligent and hardworking people questioning every single thing that you say and do was of tremendous value. And I think particularly of tremendous value for a CFO because that's exactly what happens in my everyday role in particular with investors. Yeah, I can imagine like the way you described it, it would seem to be in terms of what I've heard of investor conversations, it definitely sounds like a very good proxy for those kinds of conversations you would be having with the CFO. But I also noticed that between Maryland and the University of Chicago, you had a period of work. And I was curious about that too, because I mean, was that a sort of an intentional decision? No, absolutely. And in fact, that's really expected now, you know, to get into a good program, to have the context of having been out in the workforce and gotten your butt kicked a little bit. I think had it, you know, there are options for people, right, to go right into graduate schools of various forms. And, and there's certainly some merit to that. One is just the value of time, right? But I think that for me, at least, and I think for probably for a lot of people, going to business school after you've had a few years of seeing the ups and downs in the business world and the challenges, you can actually go there with the context to sort of self-direct for 
you know, what's important to you. An example would be, you know, when I was in business school, having had work in investment banking before, I felt like my knowledge of on the legal and the structuring side was weak. So I took classes in the law school as part of my MBA program to to come out and be more fluent. So you know what some of your weaknesses are and you can really kind of hone in on those when you're there. How do you, as you're getting more experienced and you know, you're, you're obviously now pretty high up, you're pretty confident in your abilities, but obviously know what you still, I imagine, have some blind spots and weaknesses. How do you kind of audit yourself? Is that something that you try to do? Absolutely. That's a great question. How do I do it? I think at a certain level, if you don't do it yourself, Others will tell you. <laughs> so, so that's one way, right? Is that people, you know, when you get to a certain point and you have many, many stakeholders, as CFO, your stakeholders are, you know, the organization, you have your CEO, you have your executive team, you have your investors, you may have debt holders, you may have the market, you have a bunch of things. If you're not getting direct feedback on yourself and your own development, you're getting feedback as to where you're not being necessarily convincing or persuasive or where it's just not landing, right? And that could be anything from the way that you're presenting a business. It could be the actual details that you're choosing to present. It could be several factors, right? So I think as you go further and further, there's a constant feedback loop that you can't ignore. Now, the difference might be as you go further along, that you actually mature in such a way that you're more wanting to kind of take that feedback loop and correct it. If I looked at myself at, you know, right out of school, I probably would have been like, yeah, whatever, I'll fight right through that. I don't need your feedback, right? (laughs) That gets better and better over time to the point that you start to say, well, I'm going to find the universe of things that I am weakest at and like fully develop those as best I can. And I think you have to do that as an executive, for sure. What is a overlooked skill do you think that many CFOs overlook? Creativity. I think to be a good CFO, you've had to have been hardened on, certainly you have to be quantitative. You have to be able to distill facts and information to get to outcomes that the business needs. But you also have to be able to understand that like a majority of the world doesn't necessarily think in that same silo that you do. Bringing some color to that and stepping outside of the numbers and just understanding more how others think. You don't always have to be right, right? It's not necessarily about being right. It's about getting the business in the right direction. And so I think if I went back in time for myself and said like early CFO bill to now, I think that's probably a critical difference where it's like, it's it's not about proving whether or not something's right. It's about getting the best outcome and whatever the best way to do that is the way to go. And very often that requires a level of creativity that is far outside the bounds of what you know a CFO could, let's say, get away with. Another aspect of what CFOs do that I find really interesting is the dynamic between CFO and CEO. What is that kind of relationship meant to you in your career? And is there a particular relationship with the CEO that stands out for you personally in your career? Yeah. So I would say that the CFO CEO relationship is obviously absolutely critical. I mean, I'm stating the obvious here, right? Trust is really, really important. The CFO and the CEO very often, I'd say it's not always the case, but generally speaking, the CFO and the CEO are the 
two members of the executive team who really are forced to always think completely holistically about the business. They can't silo their thinking. You have to think of how everything filters down to the end. And you have to think about ultimately your decision process, what every stakeholder is going to think about it. You know, if I make a decision, I'm thinking about like, how is it going to affect this? But I'm even thinking, how is it going to affect my next audit maybe or something crazy, right? So you have to have a really trusting relationship. And I think that in order to succeed there, if you have that trust, you have that ability to sort of merge a little bit a little bit around what I was saying before on the creative side. Like a successful business brings together the practical and the aspirational in a really good way. And a good trusting CFO, CEO relationship will leverage that where you can have some really intense debates, have some strong disagreements, because there's no way you're not going to have disagreements. And you have to have that trust to have those and push forward. So for me personally, every CEO I've worked with, I've learned a lot from. And I've been through a lot of exits. So I've been fortunate enough to have been able to work with different CEOs who are stylistically very different in many cases. It's hard for me to point to like one that I would say is is like the mold for what I would say I learned the most from. I think I can point to every CEO, honestly, and say I've learned very different things from them. And obviously, anytime you're learning, it's good. You mentioned there about stylistically different CEOs. Is there such a thing as stylistically different CFOs? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think you know some CFOs are very quiet and behind closed doors. Some are very brash and upfront and will say, this is wrong and we need to fix it or we're not doing it this way and everywhere in between. Some are really great storytellers and can understand the business and bring it to life. Some are only capable of sort of putting out numbers and reporting on them and, and it doesn't go much further than that. I'd say there's a pretty wide spectrum. And I think like, you know, there's always that conversation about the modern CFO versus not the modern CFO. And I think really the only distinction is like today, if you want to have all opportunities as CFO, you have to be able to be a really good CFO, but you have to be CEO capable in the sense that you could lead all the dynamics of a business if need be. And I think in a lot of cases with the world moving so quickly, in particular in my world of private equity, things move so fast. I think boards and investors, you know, like a co-CEO situation would never work, but you do need somebody who's sort of capable to step up when there's a gap and be that person. So I think that's what I, my view of sort of like the direction of the CFO role now and in the future. It's almost as if you read my mind because I was going to ask about whether you think that CFOs can or should be able to transition into CEO. I don't think in the past it's always necessarily been seen as the most natural kind of progression, but it definitely seems to me that perception is changing, right? I think so. I, I do think it's also depends on like every business doesn't need the same type of CFO, right? There are some businesses that, you know, I wouldn't be the best CFO for and vice versa with other people, right? Like if you take a classic sort of manufacturing business, you might require and want a CFO who is, let's say, more from an accounting background and doesn't need sort of get into the the strategic and tech and building the story around the business. I'm belittling it a little bit. Obviously, there are elements of that. But if you then raise that to like, let's say, like a really fast growing technology business that's private equity backed, the once the IPO, you have to cover all that whole spectrum, right? So you can't fall short on any of that. But all businesses don't need that person, nor would you want that person, right? So you got to find the right fit. 
You've mentioned already about the various acquisitions that you've made a part in companies that were acquired. What does that look like these days from a CFO perspective? And what is obviously it's it's a very hard thing to describe. I imagine your role was enormous in it, but as succinct to terms as possible, what kind of role did you play in facilitating those deals? As CFO, if you're going to go through a a sale process or an IPO or even raising money, you're going to be completely central to that process. So in every case, I've had to work very tightly with our investors, with the board, with, of course, CEO, with the rest of the executive team to an extent. I think there are some deals where the broader executive team needed to be very involved. And then there are other deals where Frankly, that wasn't the case until right, like sort of down to the end, getting close to closing. So it's absolutely critical that you, as CFO, orchestrate that whole process. Uh, And sometimes you have third parties involved that are assisting with that, right? You might have a banker if you're selling the business and some other things that, that take some of the weight and help out somewhat, but absolutely central. It's a brutal process to go through a sale. It's a ton of work. Time doesn't stop. So, you know, if 40 things come in today that all need to be accomplished today, that's what happens. And that doesn't just affect the CFO, it affects the whole finance team and anybody working under the CFO, frankly. It's interesting because, you I mean, you call it brutal and yet you've gone through it a few times and Facet is in that sort of that sphere. I don't know what the plan is with Facet, but why do you keep coming back? Facet in particular, we are uh, on an IPO path. So we're, we're not looking to to sell the business, we're looking to grow it and to IPO in a few years. So when I say brutal, I don't mean necessarily bad. I mean challenging and difficult, right? So I think in terms of development, going back to like your original comments around like somebody looking to become a CFO, if I could go back in time and become a CFO and I wanted to set myself on, let's say, the right course of competency and ability to be a CFO for a long period of time or an executive a long period of time, I would do exactly what I did, which I didn't intentionally do, by the way. I think I was just lucky that I kind of fell into that universe by what I did. But I would look to be in a situation where you could go through a deal process. Because that will harden you. It'll make you better. You'll fail a bunch of times at it. Like You'll do the wrong things in the beginning. And you'll get smarter and smarter and better and better at it as you go along. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting uh, listening to that, how similar it sounds to um, parenthood, <laughs> having a kid, like a young kid. And like I was saying this to my wife the other day, it was, um, it's made me having a young son has made me like quite battle hardened in the sense that I don't get so flustered easily, even at work. So it's been valuable in other ways, not just then, like obviously having a, a bundle of joy, but it definitely that kind of it resonates with me what you're saying, you know, that kind of going through that process. Definitely. And I think it also makes you to your point on earlier on learning, right? And evolving and finding your weaknesses. Now I have young children and sometimes you see them do things that you're like, oh, that's me and that's not good. <laughs> so you get an ability to kind of like learn little things through them about yourself where you're like, oh, all right, they're being pretty damn stubborn. And that can be me sometimes. Maybe I should handle that slightly differently. Business is the same way where like you get a reflection of yourself, right? And you see the good and you see the bad. You just have to be honest about like, where can I improve? How has having a family changed your perspective on your career? 
obviously I can imagine earlier on when you didn't have children, you could work longer hours and such things like that. But is that something that you're more conscious of now? For me, I can be honest that I've struggled with work-life balance. Like I think almost like a lot of, pe- lot of people do. And the family life is very, very important to me for sure. I don't think that I've slowed down in any way or changed the way I approach work. I think I've just become more efficient over time, number one. So, you know, what may have taken me a lot of time to do 10 years ago, I'm sort of a combination of being more efficient and just maybe more knowledgeable about it today. So I can get it done quicker and less prep time and things of that nature to kind of blow through it. I think also, actually, frankly, the remote and virtual environment has been helpful too, because it, you know, the workload isn't any less. In fact, I, in some ways, I actually think the virtual makes the workload more because it never stops. But it does offer a degree of flexibility that if you're going into a, an office for preset times, you have no flexibility to handle anything, right? So I think that's been great for managing family in that respect. So my answer, I think, in short, is like, I haven't mastered that yet. I'm still trying to have my cake and eat it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, well, I mean, if you master it, please do email me and let me know what your secrets are. We spoke a little bit about Facet there and you mentioned it being on an IPO path. So firstly, can you tell me a little bit more about Facet? And then I'd be curious to know about what exactly it means to be on an IPO path. Yeah, so Facet, we are a B2C fintech business that has a subscription-based financial planning model that targets the mass affluent market. So what we've done is we've unlocked financial planning for a broad segment of the population that's been left behind by you know, your traditional legacy high net worth uh, service offerings. Uh, and our model is also driven by tech, which allows us to do so with scale and efficiency. So if you think of like comparing to traditional planning high net worth models, where we differentiate is we provide holistic financial planning that evolves with life events. So you mentioned having children, right? Like when you had a child, things in your financial life changed and you need to adapt to that. The legacy models don't, right? They'd focus mostly on investments and at intermittent times discussing sort of how you adjust. Our model moves with your life and adjusts to your life events in such a way that you're able to adapt and structure your finances to the best of your ability. So on the IPO question, that's obviously been an aspiration or has it been an aspiration from your first day on the job or is there something that has evolved um, going public? When I came into Facet a couple of years ago, it was a preset strategy at that point. The intention was to, to grow this business. You know, We have a massive market, massive opportunity, great investors. And uh, it was to grow and IPO the business over a period of several years. And for me, that was interesting because, you know, I've been part of traditional sale processes in the past, which, as I mentioned, I love doing. Uh, And I've done a lot in a very short period of time, which is good. But it's also when you're selling businesses to strategics very quickly, sometimes you kind of look back and say, I would have liked to sort of carry that business to the next level, brought in more investment and done that. This is an opportunity to do that and to have that runway to IPO. So it was super compelling for me. It was the plan all along, and you know that hasn't changed uh, since I've been here. One of the questions that I'm increasingly interested in, and I've asked it to a few guests on the podcast, is it seems we, 
at the moment, I don't know if it'll calm down in the future, but at the moment we're living in a very, very sort of accelerated political and cultural landscape. In the US, for instance, I think next year there's, I can't believe it's come by already, but it's going to be the, the presidential election again, which promises to be very combative and divisive. How much do you, as a CFO, keep an eye on that? Or do you just keep your head down and focus on, on the company? I'd say there are probably two primary ways you know, I'm involved with that or thinking about that on a regular basis. And the first would be, you know, to what extent are those activities potentially affecting the markets? And you know, the markets affect my business's valuation. It affects our ability to maybe fundraise. It affects potentially consumer demand. So it, you know, there are a myriad of effects that could happen due to, let's just call them like world events, right? It could be anything, whether it's a specific political or it's anything else. So I'm always, you know, very much in tune to like how the current world climate might affect economics in a way that would change our path or my thoughts around things like our market. I think the second piece is employees. So what's very different now relative to the very beginning of my career is that employees are very much engaged in things like political events, right? In a lot of cases, employees expect you sometimes to take positions on political events, right? When I first came out of undergrad, that that would have never happened, right? Like an employer wasn't involved in any kind of way. And so particularly, you know, in like a, you know, a tech business, like that's a very relevant thing. So when, you know, major happenings occur, it's very much something that I, and not just I, but really our executive team always has to think about. Like, what's the reaction of our employee base going to be? What do we say or not say to sort of like address what our employee base is asking for while also being fair to the fact that there are differences of opinions on several things? So it's a hard thing. It's a really, it really is a hard thing because you always want to maintain neutrality, but there are demands for comments on things when they happen. I think about the software company Basecamp. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they they took a lot of heat. It subsequently died down because like they just flat out were just like no more discussing politics on the work slack, for instance, because they're fully remote. They took the nuclear option, I would say. It's a very different even I don't even have nearly as much experience as you, but I mean like yeah, even for me in the the ten ish years I've been working, it's changed a lot. I think, in terms of how much more visible it is in the workplace. Yeah, it's definitely made things more complicated and and you can't ignore it, right? It's a relevant part of managing a business today. And so, and it's also, a, you know, an area that, to your point, different businesses have taken different stances, um, anywhere from pure neutrality to some businesses, you know, the CEO has come out and taken a very defined stance on something that's pretty polarizing. So, it's all over the map and there's not necessarily, I don't think, a right answer to any of it. So it's it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. Bill, it's been really, really fun talking to you. I tend to finish this conversation with uh, some kind of reflective question. And I think in your case, I'd like to ask, what is, if you had to pick one, the best decision you've made in your career? I think actually, if I really track that back. The best decision I've made in my career occurred before my career began. I was on a path to go to law school 
to be an intellectual property attorney. And I was actually fortunate enough to have been in a car accident that made me sort of pull out of school for a little bit and really think about what I wanted to do in life and met with some intellectual property attorneys. At the same time, was introduced to some investment bankers. And that process, you know, I don't know that if I didn't have the chance to slow down and really think about what I wanted to do in life, I may have gone on that path. And that may have may have been fulfilling. But the reality is it was pretty clear to me at the time what I actually truly wanted to do. And I've loved every second of my career, like the good, the bad, the challenges, the triumphs. And so making that decision early on, I'd say, is the best career decision I've made. It's fascinating to hear the sentence, fortunate enough to be in a car crash. But um, I completely understand what you mean. Like, <laughs> in many respects, the negative things that happen to us are, are, are almost like a vehicle for, for something else. But yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Bill, where can people connect with you if they wanted to say hello or just yeah, chat with you? Or are you on social media? I don't do much on social media, but I do use the old school LinkedIn. So I'd say that's probably the best outlet. If you want to reach me, reach out there. I do check it reasonably frequently. So um, happy to engage there. Yes. And uh, I will be sure to keep an eye on Facet. Thank you very much for joining us, Bill. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, friend. 358% ROI. That's a figure that'll grab anyone's attention and is precisely what Solder delivers to its users over three years, according to a total economic impact study by Forrester Consulting. To find out more about how Solder delivers this ROI, download the full report on www.solder.com. We will put a link to the TEI study in the show description. Thank you for listening. Have a good one.